Our scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So he one just read for us from the book of Hebrews. By the way, my name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here, just in case you're wondering who this guy is that's up here talking. Welcome again. So he one just read from Hebrews, but as you know, if you've been around for the past couple of weeks this summer, we've been in the book of Genesis. And so we actually are very much continuing on in the book of Genesis this morning. So if you have your Bible still open, flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and we are going to cover a large section of the book of Genesis this morning as we get deeper into Abraham's story. But I wanted to start us off in the New Testament for a particular reason. And to get us there, I want to tell you a story about my first car. So when I was 14, my parents sat me down and said, Hey, Steve, if you want to have a car and drive it when you turn 16, you need to start working because we are not paying for it. So I started working when I was 14. And I worked a lot and I saved up so much money that I was able to buy this car. <laughs> that is a 1983 Honda Civic. High performance vehicle, original paint job, just the slightest amount of rust around the edges. I drove that car for six years. It died the week before I graduated from college, just short of its... 20th birthday, and I drove that thing all over the state of California. I drove it all over the Central Valley without air conditioning. I think I get some bonus points for that. And here's the thing, I loved that car in a lot of ways, and I also hated that car in a lot of ways. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to own an old car. There's something about owning an old car where it kind of becomes a part of who you are, right? It becomes sort of intertwined with your identity. And that was very much true of my 1983 Honda Civic. Now, here's the thing. I never got into an accident in this car, which is a good thing, because it wasn't really like safety rated, per se. <laughs> but I had a couple of traumatic experiences. I'm going to tell you about one of those. I did get a lot of speeding tickets, which is like, how do you get speeding tickets in a 1983 Honda Civic? Somehow I managed to do that. So here's my most traumatic experience that I ever had in this car. In high school, late high school, and into college, for four summers, I worked for the county of Monterey as a lab assistant to a plant pathologist. This is how exciting my life has been, okay? <laughs> what we were doing is we are doing research on some of the major crops that are grown in the Salinas Valley in the Monterey County. And so from time to time, as the grunt man, I would have to go and participate in harvest to sort of collect some 
data and species, if you will, and bring them back to the lab. So this one particular summer, I had to spend a lot of time harvesting strawberries, which means that you have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and it's usually really, really cold and you get super wet and it's a very miserable experience bending over, picking up the strawberries. Next time you eat a strawberry, just say sort of a prayer of appreciation for those folks who have to harvest them because it is not easy work. And there was one particular week during this stretch where I had to get up every single day, Monday through Friday, to do this. And the thing that kind of sustained me during that suffering was the fact that there was a music festival going on. One of my favorite bands was playing that Friday. And so the whole week I'm like going through this, looking forward to Friday because I was going to get to see this band. So Friday comes, wake up early, go pick the strawberries, go home, get cleaned up, and then head out to this festival. It was at Laguna Seca in Monterey. And it had been going on all day. So by the time I got there in mid-afternoon, I had to park really far away, like out in the boonies, which is essentially out in a cow pasture. So I park out there, I go listen to the music. And here's a fun fact about Monterey County. In the summer, when it's super hot, kind of like it is right now, the hot air in the Central Valley sucks all of this cold air in from the ocean. And it creates these really strong afternoon breezes and then it pulls in a very thick layer of fog. So my car is out in this parking lot all afternoon getting pelted by the wind and the dust, and then the fog kind of comes in and lays on top of it, and it creates this really gross muck all over the car, okay? So the concert ends, I say goodbye to my friends, I head out to my car, it's about midnight, many people have left at this point, I'm in the cow pasture, it's very dimly lit, and I get in my car, and I'm tired. Remember, I've been up since 4 o'clock in the morning. Start the car, I'm like, wow, I can't see anything. So I turn the wipers on, and it kind of does this thing, and it just spreads the muck all over the windshield. And so I was 18, and an idiot, and tired, and so I'm like, ah, whatever, and I just start driving. And again, many people have left at this point, so there's not really any clear indicators about where the road is. And so I drive my high-performance 1983 Honda Civic right into a barbed wire fence. And I get like halfway into it, and the top wire gets stuck on my antenna, and it makes this really loud scratching noise, and it's very traumatic. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? And I open the door and I look out, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I just put it in reverse and backed out which caused the barbed wire to go wham right into my windshield, cracking the windshield in many different directions. This is how the story ends, okay? This, this ends well. Somehow, I figure out how to get back on the road and make it home and safe and sound. I still don't really know how I did that. But there are a couple of things that I want to say about this story, one of which definitely connects to that passage that we read in Hebrews. So hang with me here for a minute. Okay, the first thing is this. If you are going to drive your car into a barbed wire fence, you want to do it in a 1983 Honda Civic, <laughs> okay? Because you won't really care that much about what happens to it. But here's the other thing, okay? And this is, I think, hopefully the more profound point. A lot of us, this is what our life feels like, right? It feels like we are driving around, we have no idea where we're going, and we have no idea what we're doing. And then we open up scripture and we look at a passage like Hebrews and we read about Abraham and Sarah. Or we look at Romans 4 and we read about how Abraham was this faithful guy and was righteous because of his faith. And we think, 
I can never be like this. I'm a mess. I'm driving around in a 1983 Honda Civic with a cracked windshield and I can't see where I'm going. Like, how am I supposed to be like this person that I'm reading about in the New Testament? And sometimes if we're sort of holy and we're reading this in the morning, you want to kind of quit right there and not even carry on with your day, right? It can be exhausting sometimes measuring ourselves against these characters in Scripture. And so here's the thing. We have four more weeks in the book of Genesis. And so far we've been focused on these prehistory stories, these early chapters in Genesis. But now, over these last four weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into large chunks of Scripture and into the stories of three particular people. There's obviously more characters involved in that. But we're going to go deep into the stories of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. And again, sometimes we tend to think of characters in Scripture as these people who just had it, they had it all figured out and they were so amazing and they were so faithful. But when you really look at their story and the whole story, you see a much different picture. And so my hope for these last four weeks is that we really are able to see in a very sort of holistic, robust way what the life of faith looks like. And that in seeing all of the ups and downs and the flaws of these characters, we're able to give ourselves some grace and to see faith in hopefully a new and fresh way. So Genesis chapter 12, a couple of things that we need to remember before we get into Abraham's story here in more depth. The first thing we need to remember is that this book is this identity-forming document for the people of Israel, God's chosen people who have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're trying to remember who they are and why they're here and what their purpose is and who this God is who's rescued them. And then as I just said, we've spent a lot of time in the early chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, where we see this tension being raised between God's good creation, which is described in chapters 1 and 2, and then the effects of sin on his good creation. That's chapters 3 through 11. And there's this question that begins to sort of hang over the text as you make your way through this part of the book, and it's the question of what is God going to do about this? Is there a plan? Is this just an endless cycle of sin and judgment, sin and judgment, and a little bit of grace thrown in here in a couple of different places? Or is there more to this story? Is there some definitive thing that God will do to answer the question of sin? And if you were with us last Sunday, we started the Abraham story, and we saw that, in fact, God does have a plan. It is not a very efficient plan. God chooses to work in people and through circumstances, in time. And as a result of that choice, this is a plan that's going to unfold over a long amount of time. And it all begins with this choosing of Abraham, or Abram as he's known to us in chapter 12. And so the story begins like this. God comes to Abram and asks him to take this incredible risk, leave everything that he has known behind, and then to follow him to this mysterious new land that he will show him. And this is a huge, significant risk, but it is attached to a promise, to this blessing of land and seed. Remember, we talked about this a lot last week, territory and descendants, a home and a family. And where we ended the story last time is God does come through on this promise of the land. Abraham receives a new land, and he sort of starts to make his home there. But there's this really big question about the seed part of it. How will God fulfill this? Because we also learned last week that Sarah, his wife, is barren. So how will God fulfill this promise of seed? 
we're now again going to cover a really big section here, and I hope that there's you know, some stuff to learn and some intellectual things to wrestle with. But what I really want is for you guys to feel this. I want you to feel what Abram and Sarai go through in this process. I want you to feel all the ups and downs and the twists and turns of their story. One more important fact from where we were last week, Genesis 12:4 tells us that Abram is 75 years old when this journey with Yahweh begins. There's a couple of things about this. One is just to remember that number because Abram's age will come up again and again throughout his story. But the second thing is just to think about that for a minute. He's 75 years old when this all begins. I think a lot of times we think of risk, we think of these sort of daring moments, these sort of daring acts of faith as something for the young, right? Something you do in your youth. But God does not start his plan of redemption with a young man. And so I think it raises the question or the idea for us that maybe, maybe our best moment is still ahead of us. Maybe the big thing that God is calling us to do is still out there in front of us somewhere. So the journey, it starts late for Abram, but it's still quite the journey. Here's what happens next. This is the end of chapter 12. There's a famine in this land that God has promised to Abram. And so what does Abram do? Because he's so holy, he decides to pray and to ask God to provide food, and he trusts God to take care of him, right? No. He leaves. He bails. He and Sarah pack up, and they go to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, Abram tells the Egyptians that Sarai is his sister, which is a lie. Somehow, in the midst of all of that, it all works out for Abram. God strikes Pharaoh with a plague. This is sort of a moment of foreshadowing. And then Pharaoh's like, why did you do this to me? Why did you lie about your sister? Here's a bunch of stuff. Take all my stuff and leave. And so Abram's like, okay. So Abram makes out like a bandit, and then he and Sarah go back to the promised land. This leads us to chapter 13, where Abram, who now has a bunch of stuff, is bumping into his nephew Lot. Remember, Lot moved with him to the promised land. And so they're getting into some fights about, you know, each other's territory. And so Abram says, you know, we're going to have to separate. We're going to have to go separate ways. I'll let you go first. You can pick first. Pick wherever you want to go. Very generous move by Abram. So Lot makes his choice. Abram then goes in the opposite direction and settles down and he builds an altar, which is something we saw him do several times last Sunday in the earlier part of chapter 12. So two chapters in, already we've seen Abram takes risks. He follows through on these risks. Then he backs out. He panics. He gets kind of lucky. He acts incredibly generously towards his nephew, and he continues to worship Yahweh. This is, again, just the first two chapters. Chapter 14, Lot gets caught up with some bad dudes, so Abram comes to his rescue, bails him out. And then there's this really weird little story about a guy named Melchizedek. And this is one of those scenes that I wish we had more time in this series, because I would love to do a whole thing on Melchizedek. But check this out. Melchizedek, sort of out of nowhere, is described as a priest of the Lord. And then Melchizedek comes out to Abraham with bread and wine. Interesting. He blesses Abram, and then Abram, in response to this, gives up a tenth of his stuff, which, remember, is a lot of stuff at this point. What is this all about? There's sort of a prototypical church thing happening right here in Genesis chapter 14. Now, on to chapter 15. This deserves a little bit more of our attention. Abram and Sarai, 
are starting to get kind of stressed out about not having kids. They're kind of like, hey, you promised us this. Where are the kids? Like, it's just us. We don't see anybody. <laughs> and so God decides to take Abram out into the desert at night to reassure him. And he has him look up into the heavens. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, this is again God speaking to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. And this is where a lot of the New Testament writers pick up on Abraham's great faith. Well, here's what happens next. God says, okay, this is my promise. I'm going to give you all these descendants. Here's how we're going to sort of make this like a real deal. You're going to go, and you're going to cut a bunch of animals in half, like you do, and then we're going to walk through it as a sign of the covenant. So here's what happens. Abram falls into a great sleep. This is interesting because this great sleep language is the same language used to talk about Adam in Genesis chapter 2 when he falls into a great sleep and God pulls one of his ribs out to create Eve. In this state, God comes to Abram and again reiterates this promise. You will have descendants. He also throws in this tidbit about there's going to be slavery and 400 years of slavery. And again, the original audience of Israel would have been like, yes, we know about that. We just went through that. And then God seals the covenant by himself passing through these cut-in-half animals, this symbolic act that represents the seriousness of the covenant that they're making. Now, normally, both parties would walk through here sort of as a way to say, may this happen to me. If I don't keep up my end of this deal, may this happen to me. May I be torn in two. But in this scene, only God goes through. We saw this with Noah. God himself taking on all of the weight of the covenant, all the terms of the covenant, putting it on himself. Now, we learn at the end of chapter 16 that Abram is now 86 years old. So this is 11 years after God first comes to him. Once again, Abram and Sarai are getting restless about not having any children. Sarai comes up with a plan. She says, you know, I have this servant. Her name's Hagar. Maybe you should sleep with her, and maybe that could produce an heir that will be you know, the fulfillment of this promise. And Abram, because he's a dummy, is like, eh, good idea. That'll probably work. It does, in a sense, it does work. They do produce a child, but lo and behold, that creates all kinds of problems. Surprise, surprise. So Hagar and this son named Ishmael, they have to leave to sort of diffuse the awkward situation that's been created there. But in an amazing moment of grace, God promises to take care of Ishmael, to take care of his descendants, to provide protection and a nation that will come from him. Chapter 17, fast forward another 13 years. Abram is now 99 years old. God shows up again and reiterates this covenant, this promise, this blessing again. This is now almost 25 years after their first encounter. Here's what God says. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. So here's the name change, another sign of their relationship, of this covenant together. And then God says, we're going to take it up even another level because I want this covenant to be something that you pass on to all generations. And so I'm going to give you a permanent sign, and the sign is going to be circumcision. 
And Abraham is like, really? Really? Circumcision, not like a handshake or something like that? But God says, no, it will be circumcision. And then he once again reiterates this promise. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed. Said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I just want to pause there for a moment and sit with that. This is, again, this guy in the New Testament who's described as this amazing person of faith is here laughing at God. Abraham said to God, What about Ishmael? Might Ishmael live before you? And God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Are you feeling this? Are you feeling the ups and downs and all of the different twists and turns that this story is taking and the ways in which there are moments where Abraham is like tracking and on it and really with it and these other moments where he just doesn't get it, right? Abraham and Sarah have these very profound experiences with God. But they also have to, like the rest of us, try to figure this out in real life, in relationships and interactions with other people, and in particular with this issue of barrenness. It doesn't look like God is coming through. Even though he keeps saying it, it doesn't look like he's going to come through on this promise. They are not perfect. They don't respond in the right way every single time, and they're incredibly honest about all of this. And here's the thing, this story, not even close to being over yet. Over the next three chapters, all of the same patterns repeat. God shows up again and promises his son again within a year, and Sarah laughs again. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's a sentence that's in the Bible. <laughs> The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? You guys are getting it now. It's fine. <laughs> the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Here's the key phrase. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. You almost get the sense that God's like, come on. When are you going to believe me? And then this is my favorite part of the whole thing. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. This is my kids, right? After this, Abraham shows more generosity. He bails out Lot again. They freak out again. They run away to another land. There's this whole repeat of the lying about Sarah, again, calling her his sister. This final year of waiting for Isaac reveals all of the same character traits and flaws that we've seen all throughout the story. It just keeps going and going and going. Finally, though, in chapter 21, Sarah conceives and Isaac is born. The promise is finally fulfilled. The end, right? No. 
It is not the end. Then, here comes chapter 22. Okay, and this is one of the most incredible, even bizarre scenes in all of Scripture. After all of this, God comes to Abraham and says, you got to give it up now. You are going to sacrifice your son. Can you imagine, after three decades of journeying with God, of wrestling with this promise, of living through this barrenness, waiting for this to come through, being reassured again and again despite all of your failings, and then it does actually happen, and then God says, you're going to kill your son. This, again, is a story that deserves its own sermon in so many ways. It is ultimately a foreshadowing of God's ultimate act of salvation, God providing Jesus as the acceptable substitute and sacrifice, as the ultimate reversal of all the destructiveness of evil and sin. But back to where we started, if you only read chapter 22, you think, man, Abraham is amazing. What a guy. So willing to give up his son. I can never do that. But you cannot... Look at chapter 2 separate from everything that comes before that. You must remember the journey that Abraham goes on to get to that place. Again, Abraham and Sarah are faithful. They are obedient. They're willing to take risks. We see them being generous. We see them being very worshipful. But they also freak out. They try to make the plan happen on their own terms and on their own timing. They lie and they cheat. We see them laugh at God. We see them argue with God. We see them bargain with God. In other words, they're just like us, right? They are real people. And I would argue they are real people moving through a very common pattern of growth. I want to take a few minutes to talk about this pattern of growth. It begins with what we're calling orientation. This is a phase of life where everything sort of makes sense, we're comfortable, and we're content with who we are and where we're at in life. Everything's pretty good, right? This is Abraham at 75, living in Ur, living with his family, running his business, doing his thing. He's good. Then there's this moment of disorientation. Something happens and everything in life is upended. That certainty is replaced by questioning. This is the inciting incident moment that we talked about last week. This can be a positive or a negative development, probably more often negative, if we're being honest. But our world gets turned upside down, and we discover that what was working for us no longer works. For Abraham, disorientation starts the moment that Yahweh shows up and says, hey, you're going to move, you're going to leave everything that you know, and you are critical. You are important to my plan of salvation. Let's go. Disorientation. This leads ultimately to reorientation. Reorientation is living into this new reality. You've moved through the chaos of disorientation, and now, because of that, there is something qualitatively different about you and about the texture of your faith. Abraham goes, God gives him this new land, and then we see Abraham walking through, and he builds altars in all the places that he stops. This is phase one of his reorientation. 
But this is not the end. This cycle continues to repeat. Abram and Sarai spent 24 years waiting for this promised child. And while they continue to have these incredible interactions with God, they settle. They orient into this sort of barren, childless life. And they settle to the point where it becomes laughable, right? That God might actually come through on what he said. But then disorientation comes again. God changes their names. God makes a covenant with them in a couple of different ways. He reiterates the promise over and over again, which leads to another reorientation, which happens when Isaac is born, and they have to live into a new reality, right? As parents, as patriarchs. And then the process repeats all over again. Orientation, life with Isaac, enjoying the fulfillment of this promise. Disorientation, the call to sacrifice Isaac. And then reorientation, Abraham seeing God come through in a whole new way. And in particular, this glimpse that he gets of the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. How have you experienced that in your own life? Now, when we look at the full complexity of Abraham and Sarah's life with God, there are a couple of things that I want to say about this and what it teaches us about faith. And again, coming back to where we started, sometimes we read about these guys in the New Testament and it's exhausting comparing ourselves to them. But we've got to remember some of these real basic things about faith that I think gives a little bit more character to these guys. So first, faith is not a substance, it is a muscle. A lot of times when we're facing something challenging, we're facing a struggle, we tend to think, oh, if I only had more faith, then I'd be able to handle this. It's like we have this faith tank in our soul and somehow we sense that it's not quite full enough and if we can just find the faith station, we could fill it up a little bit more and then we'd be good, then we could handle it. But faith is not a substance that we acquire, it is a muscle that we build and you have to, like all muscles, work it out. You have to train it. And here's the thing, that issue that you're facing, that struggle that is in front of you, that's actually the invitation to growth. That's the beginning of the growth process. That struggle is the weight, the workout that you need to exercise your faith muscle. Abraham has this incredibly well-toned faith muscle by the time God comes to him and asks him to sacrifice Isaac. Most scholars believe that Isaac was 12 years old when this scene takes place, which if you add all of that up, means that Abraham had been on this journey with God for almost 40 years. He'd been working out that faith muscle for almost 40 years. I think it's safe to say he probably would not have responded this way 30, 20, 10, even five years earlier. This leads to the second thing we learn from their story. Faith is not a destination. It is a journey. It is a process. A lot of times we have this tendency to kind of thin slice our life and look at what's happening right now and feel inadequate or like we don't measure up in some way, but we forget that there's this bigger thing going on. There's this bigger process that we're a part of. Faith is not the place that Abraham is at when he's asked to sacrifice Isaac. It's all the points along the way that led him to that moment. It was going through all of those conversations with God about this promise. It was all those years of barrenness. Again, a lot of us feel like we don't have enough faith. We're not in a good place, but it may simply be that we're just in this disorientation phase and God is moving us into a new place. Brian Harris, who I stole the 
orientation process from says people usually grow the most during times of struggle. In the bigger story of our lives, we may actually be exactly where we need to be in these moments of struggle because this is where our faith is going to grow. And it's important to remember you're not done. Again, this is a journey, not a destination. And then the last thing is this. Faith is not an emotion. It is an action. Too often we associate the quality of our faith with how we are feeling. Feel close to God. Oh, my faith is really strong. Feel far from God. Oh, my faith is not very strong. But emotions come and go. Abraham and Sarah felt all kinds of things along the way, right? Fear, excitement, joy, frustration, anger, bitterness, fatigue. None of those feelings was faith. Because faith is not a feeling, it's an action. Faith was packing up the pots and pans and getting in that moving truck. Faith was saying goodbye to friends and family. Faith is coming back to the land that God had promised after they panicked and went to Egypt. Faith was letting Lot go first. Faith was giving 10% of everything they had to this guy Melchizedek. Faith was those honest conversations with God. Faith is an action. It's a choice, and sometimes simply just to keep taking another step, and then another step, and then another step, and then another step. Father, thank you for all of the crazy ways that you work in our lives. And Father, as we consider the story of Abraham and Sarah, may all of us continue to just trust that the next step is the step that we need to take. And we may not understand everything that you're doing. We may not see the big picture, but help us to grow just a little bit more in our ability to trust you as we continue to take these steps of faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.